This is Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier on the Big Talker KQAM. Welcome into Kansas Talk right here on the Big Talker, 1480 AM, 1025 FM KQAM. It is a Saturday morning. Great to have you along for the ride this morning, trying to get you up and moving for the day the way we do each and every weekend. I hear that it's supposed to be in the 60s and 70s this weekend. That's, you know, what a change since a couple of weeks ago when we saw, oh, I don't know, negative 25 degree weather and the cold front that moved in. I would, I don't know, can I find a happy medium between the two? Kind of been enjoying the cooler weather, but nonetheless, welcome into the show. Great to have you today. 316-721-8255. 316-721-TALK right here on the program if you want to call in. All presented by Phil's Coins, 9344 West Central Avenue, buying and selling and trading with all your gold and silver needs. They're open in about a half hour from now. You know, you can also visit them online at philscoins.com. Hold on here. We're, we do have the Facebook live feed going on, and it's just got to rearrange things a little bit so I can actually see things. But uh, we have a big show lined up for you today. Coming up in hour number two. We have Subject County uh, Sheriff Jeff Easter. He'll be joining us, and we'll chat with him a little bit about some of the latest going on in the community. It's been way too long since we've had him on the program talking about some of the COVID, law enforcement during COVID, what's going on at the county jail, all that and more. So we'll chat with him in hour number two. Plus, Cindy Miles, candidate for District Number 3 for the City Council. She'll be joining us at the bottom of next hour as well live. So we'll look forward to chatting with her. But in studio for this hour, I'm excited to have these guys back on. And again, this has been... Uh, a long time in coming, and it's been way too long since we've had you guys on the show. And I don't think we've ever done it together with you two no, on the program either. Yeah, so Mr. Carl Peter John with us. Carl, how are you, sir? Hey, good morning, Andy. It's yeah. good to be here. It's good to have you back on and John Todd with us. Uh, you've been on the show a couple times before as well. John, how are you? This is what I have to do back to. Yeah, and I don't know why your microphone's not working, so I'll have to play with that one for a second. But uh, first off, it's good to have you guys in on the show and I know you guys were up in the state legislature last week talking about some legislative well, February issues. February 24th, we yeah. testified in front of the House Local Government Committee in support of legislation that would allow the city to actually enact the policy they say they have, Policy 38, to require voter approval on whether we can save the historic, iconic Century 2 building and the Main Street Library. And Andy, it's sad that uh, this whole issue, City Hall has taken this into the courts, the Save Century 2 Committee strongly believes, Andy, that this is a issue, saving this, these historic buildings that should be in the court of public opinion, not in a Kansas appellate courtroom. And unfortunately, uh, we've been fighting the city all the way on this, even though the city says and claims, and they're running around saying, we want the voters to decide this, but we don't have the authority to have a binding election. Well, we've we're going to make them put their money where their mouth is because House Bill 2233, it's House Bill 2233, would require the city to hold a binding election if there are any buildings that are on the National Historic Registry that are owned by a municipality and are 80,000 square feet or larger, which at the moment in Wichita, there are only two buildings that are municipally owned and meet that other criteria, and that's Century 2, and the Main Street Library, which, by the way, Andy, that Main Street Library, we've been using that for distribution on the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it just goes to show how important and how useful that building could be. And Century 2 was used, uh, they were using it uh, to handle uh, emergency vehicles during earlier stages in the pandemic last year, as well as they've reopened it for other events. Uh, there are uh, 
other activities going on at Century 2. It's not totally back to normal, although hopefully we're going to follow the more progressive, what I like to call progressive in a moving the country forward, not in a left-wing Looney Tune sort of way, <laughs> uh, like South Dakota and Texas and reopen Kansas. Now, that that's a personal opinion that has nothing to do with Save Century 2 directly, but, but as a Save Century 2 advocate, Andy, we really need to be in a position to uh, utilize these facilities at this time for the benefit of the community. Let's go back to the very beginning of this conversation on where this all came from. I know that the, now again, I left for about a six month stint out of the community. So uh, that's kind of when a lot of this discussion started up, I believe, with Century 2 and what we're going to do with the future of Century 2, knock it down and build something new, try to preserve it, try to renovate it. I mean, this has kind of uh, been an ongoing conversation for a while, hasn't it? Now we're finally starting. I think COVID really brought it out of what are we going to do with Century 2 and is it really up to the standard that we want it to be in, correct? I mean, that's really where the, where the conversation started. Well, they, there was a uh, suspicion drive when we, uh, it became obvious that we weren't going to have a vote on this. You know what, John? Go ahead and use that microphone over there. I don't know why that one's not working. We'll, we'll oh, it, play that it, one in the break. The uh, Riverside Legacy Group, uh, the plan they formulated, it became very clear to us uh, that, uh, that uh, it, their plan didn't involve uh, repurposing Century 2, it actually just involved tearing it down. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're going to basically have 30 acres of prime land downtown and the uh, and without and, and spend a billion dollars and do all of this wonderful things without a vote of the people. And and that that's where the rub really uh, sure. came in. 17,265 people signed a petition that would mandate a binding vote. Uh, the city council uh, saw us in court instead of uh, just letting us vote, and the uh, and so when uh, as as we went, it became obvious that uh, that uh, that they uh, they had no intentions of, of doing a binding vote. Uh, uh, we uh, took this uh, issue to the Kansas legislature, and I might remind in House Bill twenty two thirty three, Municipal Historic Buildings Act, let the voters decide the fate of publicly owned buildings like Century 2 and the former public library. Mm. Specific legislation, and, and it, uh, uh, this is something that is really not too late uh, for people to let their uh, senator and representative in Topeka know that it's important to them. And it, uh, I, th- I think it's something that uh, it's not too late really to, to be pushing for letting the people vote. Sure. I completely agree. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about the what led to the bill, as you mentioned, up in the state legislature and kind of what the decision was there and then what we can do, where the city council's at as well. I know this has been a discussion kind of ongoing and they've kind of drugged their feet a little bit on making a decision one way or another on where we're going to go. So there's a lot of discussion that goes along with Century 2, but I want to get your thoughts as well at 316-721-8255, 316-721-TALK. Real quickly, how, how busy... Before, obviously, COVID pandemic, how busy was Century 2? How much did we use the facility? Andy, part of the reason we were successful with the petition drive, and if I can build on John's comments real quickly before we cut for the break, we were in a situation where we'd had tremendous public response at our public meetings. And when the council indicated they weren't going to do anything, uh, some people said, wait a minute, we can use state law for a municipal initiative petition to force them to act. It entailed we'd have to collect over it was equivalent of 25% of the number of people who voted in the 20, um, um, in last year's, uh, actually it's two years ago, 2019 mayoral race. And that's over 12,000 signatures. 
valid signatures. And we started that petition drive in January of 2020. And the public response was overwhelming. And Andy, it brought the community together. We had people who really don't agree on much of anything, but they love Century 2. They love the library building. And we've, whether they, we'd have people pull into our parking lot with Bernie Bro bumper stickers on one side, parking <laughs> next to a, somebody who's got an Alex Jones sticker on it. And the Bernie Bro would be coming in to pick up yard signs saying Save Century 2. And the, and the Alex Jones guy is coming in to get his petitions that he's gotten filled out notarized. We brought this community together. And unfortunately, except for the small group of, I, th- I think, the insider group at City Hall and, uh, and the city council itself, uh, the public support on this, Andy, has been overwhelming. And that's why they don't want it to go to the people. But the irony is, is Andy, the library and Century 2 were originally built because of a vote of the people back about 60, almost 60 years ago. And so what we're trying to do is preserve our heritage, build on the heritage. These buildings... Uh, haven't been taken care of the way they should have been. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason we're in this discussion from the legacy, this Riverfront Legacy uh, Consortium and their scheme to uh, spend over a billion dollars to do more insider deals. I mean, I'm still upset, Andy, with the fact that with the base, new baseball stadium that's never been used, you had the city selling prime Riverfront land for a dollar an acre and then turning around and the city's buying within walking distance of the riverfront property, lower valued land away from the river at over a million dollars an acre. And this is the sort of terrible financial decision-making. And I don't care who on the city council, whether they're viewed as more liberal or more conservative, whatever, this is terrible decision-making. And that's why the effort to go around and bring the Kansas Constitution's provisions that says all political power is inherent in the people to bring that to life and do so through this petition drive. Sure. Very good. Very good. I want to talk about the potential future, the potential options of what this all could do for the community later on uh, when we come back from the break. Plus, your phone calls at 316-721-8255, 316-721-TALK. We have a lot to get to today here on Kansas Talk. We have all this, plus I want to get some legislative updates as well. We move forward with a Second Amendment bill up in Topeka. We'll touch on that today as well. Big stuff going on right here on the Big Talker KQAM. Stay here. Welcome back into the program. Thanks for hanging out today on a Saturday morning here on the Big Talker, 1480 AM, 102.5 FM KQAM. It's Kansas Talk, trying to get you up and moving. By the way, real quickly, uh, let me see if I can find my clip. Helps if I have it prepared. Roger Marshall up in Washington, D.C., working on that HR1 bill from the House of Representatives that was passed this week. And he was preparing for the big debate they've been going on about voting. We'll talk about that in a little bit as well. We need to get him back on the program here in the next couple of weeks to give an update as well. But uh, big debate. You need to call his office, although he's on fire, he's rocking it, and he's fighting that one hard, that HR1. We've talked about it during the program, uh, during the Voice of Reason uh, weekdays, and it's a disastrous bill, so we need to make sure to stay on top of that one to make sure that they do not get rid of the filibuster 60-vote majority, supermajority they need in order to pass that one because – Lowering the age to voting to the age of 16 is about one of the dumbest things you could probably do. 
We'll talk about that a little bit later in the program. But for now, we have John Todd. We have uh, Carl Peter John in studio talking about the Century 2. Uh, and again, now I, here's my point, or here's my, I guess, side of this is I'm pretty much indifferent on this one. I've gone to Century 2 a couple of times. Uh, it's a nice building. Depending on what they want to do or discuss what they potentially want to do with that site, if they want to build something bigger and better, but keep it kind of a an event center like that, if they want to do something completely different, what have been the talks of if we do end up just knocking it down, clearing the way, what are the options? Are they wanting to keep it something like that or they want to do something totally different? Well, I, I've followed the, uh, the the path that the Riverside uh, Legacy Group uh, has charted uh, Actually, our city uh, gave $100,000 to them, so did the county, and there was they raised money from the private sector also. Uh, the, the public view on this is that uh, they knew in advance what they were trying to achieve, and, and, and lo and behold, when you look at the final uh, uh, work that they did, uh, the, the final uh, policy uh, showed a, a 30 acres, basically, without Century 2 of the public library. Mm. And... and you know, the people have been watching downtown redevelopment for a long time. Uh, frankly, uh, they have watched the city policy has created wealth for, for the politically elected, politically connected, and reserved losses for the taxpayers. They're tired of it. They feel that Wichita's, we're better people than that. We deserve better than that. And they're tired of what they view as cronyism. And so, really, signing the, uh, the, the, the petition was... Well, there it's it's an eth- matter of trying to create uh, better ethics downtown, sure. In our city council, uh, and the interesting thing uh, when we were in Topeka uh, on February twenty fourth, uh, Jason Watkins, a lobbyist for the Wichita Regional Chamber of Commerce, opposed this bill. He opposed letting the people decide the fate of Century Two and, and the former public library. So we have the chamber versus 17,265 petition signers. If I can add to what John just said, Andy, it's important to realize that the city council that adopted this policy 38 saying let the people vote, we had two members of the city council testify uh, from uh, over, the, over the Internet uh, on that bill, and they joined Jason Watkins of the chamber in opposing House Bill 2233, Brandon Johnson spoke extensively, saying he thought it was a bad idea, uh, and it, it was kind of a unclear because, in theory, he's supporting policy, the city's policy 38, saying the people should decide, but here he is testifying against bill that would actually give the city the authority that they say they claim they want. And we had Councilman Brian Fry basically seconding uh, uh, Councilman Johnson's uh, Remarks and a third council member, uh, 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 Becky Tuttle, was scheduled to to testify. Although she didn't testify, but she was listed as sharing uh, Fry and Johnson's opinion. And so you had this downtown, uh, the, the Wichita Chamber lobbyist Jason Watkins, and uh, you had the the council members basically opposing the citizens, Andy. And the real question is. When you have a decision of this magnitude, and I think folks can disagree, but we've got, if you look at pictures of pictures of Kansas, one of the true landmarks, not only for Wichita, but for the state of Kansas, is Century 2. It is a very unique building. We've been looking around for other buildings that have this Frank Lloyd Wright style, 
And it, this building was not designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, but it was designed by people who were students and who were mentored by Frank Lloyd Wright, combined with the fact that it's almost entirely unique. There's almost no other building in the entire United States or the world sure. uh, that's designed like this. And it, it's another factor, and John can talk to this better than I can, the construction. To tear down this building, it would be not only, in my view, a hideous insult to our heritage and our history, but it's going to be a very tough building to take down because the construction of it is so, because of the unique structure, they over-reinforce that building in so many different ways. And the amount of reinforced steel and uh, structural supports that are in place there, that would be a terribly, terribly difficult building uh, to take down compared to some other structures uh, that have disappeared. And we've lost some. I mean, Meade's Corner at uh, Emporia and Douglas, that was on the National Register of Historic Places. And a lot of people don't realize this, Andy. Just because a building is on the National Register of Historic Places, it can be torn down. In fact, uh, the Meade's Corner example is a good, uh, demonstrates that. So just because it's got that designation, it makes it a little bit harder. And there are certain things that have to be done before you can do make that decision, Andy. But we are in a situation where um, can we, as a community, coming out of the pandemic and all the problems that have resulted from this the last year, uh, be involved in a, in a project, especially in light of the fact that the whole meetings and public event forums, the business, the whole structure of the way we do business is going to be changing because of what's happened in the last year. Sure. Uh, you mentioned the just the price of the construction to try and tear down because it's so over-enforced. What would be the cost of the uh, of the tearing down versus the maybe the renovation of it to make it uh, more sturdy to try and, as you mentioned before, the, the lack of upkeep that it had before? What would be kind of the price difference if we try to tear it down versus we try to reconstruct it a little bit or at least try and get it back up to where it needs to be? And what is the cost of Century 2 to the city right now? Is it making a profit? Obviously not including COVID-19 year last year, but uh, on a normal year, is it keeping itself up or is it a, a money pit for the city? I mean, where are we at financially with the building? Well, it's interesting because we have a local real, uh, theater entrepreneur, Bill Warren, mm-hmm. who has agreed to come in and used with his staff of experts on entertainment and and come up with ideas on repurposing the building so we it wouldn't involve tearing it down incidentally talking about tearing it down i was in wichita and we had the the fortune of uh, supplying 25 carloads of plaster that went into that building this building is extremely well built and i i've been in it in recent months the plaster the expansion joints there's no cracks in it it is a it is a wonderful uh, construction. You you just can't you, they won't be able to match it basically. One uh, <clears throat> going back to the chamber for a minute. <clears throat> one has to wonder what special interest group the chamber really wants to build the one billion dollar plus river fight project on the on municipal owned land that currently is occupied by Century Two and the former public library, all without a binding public vote. This is what the people are mad about. They're mm. concerned about it. It's nonpartisan, and it's in its left, right, center, Democrat, Republican. We had 
that that's the beauty of what I've what I've I've been involved in a lot of grassroots politics and over grassroots activities over the years. First time I've ever seen everyone on the same page. Sure. Very interesting. Let's go ahead and take a break here. we got to take a hard break here at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, I want to continue that conversation and talk about, just as you mentioned, some of the renovations just citywide and as we're growing, kind of what the next steps are for the city as well. we got the Facebook live feed. You can go to Facebook.com slash 1480KQAM. Watch the live stream there. You can leave some comments. You can also call into the program at 316-721-8255. 316-721-TALK. Century 2, what should be the future of the building? And where do we go from here with the discussion that's been a very uh, intense discussion in the community for a while now? We'll do all that and more coming up here on Kansas Talk on the Big Talker KQAM. Now back to Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier. Uh-huh. Come on. Feel it. Kansas Talk on KQAM. Welcome back in. 316-721-8255. 316-721-TALK. Got to get the adrenaline going a little bit this morning as we try to wake you up each and every day here on Kansas Talk. But you can always call in at 316-721-8255. 316-721-TALK. Coming up, hour number two, we have Central County Sheriff Jeff Easter. We sat down with him just a day or so ago to chat about everything going on in the community. We'll play that interview to kick off hour number two, plus Cindy Miles. Big election coming up next week for a special seat to fill district number three of the city council. And uh, that's going to be a, a heated one, per se, as there's a lot of candidates. And uh, we'll have Cindy Miles to chat about some of that and more coming up on the show. But right now, Carl Peter John and John Todd still hanging out in studio for this half hour as we talk about Century 2, the future of Century 2, and the options that we have. Let's talk about some of the options uh, in a minute. But I do want to mention, uh, to, I wanted to go back to the the maintenance and the upkeep. How much does this cost the city and the, the comparison of prices between just like we mentioned, knocking it down, building up something new, or actually trying to renovate and maintain what we already have there. Andy, it's a key point. When I was a county commissioner, we focused on having money available in our capital improvement budget to take care of our physical infrastructure and plant. And the city supposedly was operating that way. In fact, they had money scheduled. I believe the number was around $20 million to redo the roof on Century 2 back in 2008. And the money got shifted out, got spent elsewhere, and none of the money for maintenance that should have been spent on Century 2, it's been treated like uh, the, the, it has been abused, in effect. It's sort of like you buying a house and then doing nothing to maintain it for 15 years and then saying, oh, the house is in lousy shape. Well, let's tear it down and get a new one. And that's kind of the way I view the way City Hall has treated Century 2 in particular and to a lesser degree uh, the downtown library could because, of course, uh, when they when they built the new library um, and shifted it out of the Main Street location, we made a transformation. And, and I think the city is guilty of malfeasance and nonfeasance for how Century 2 has been ha, has not been taken care of in the last oh for over a decade. Sure. And if we look at a um, little money has been allocated more recently. Uh, the question you raised also was how Century 2 should operate going forward. And I'd like to emphasize there's a whole bunch of options that are out there. But, you know, the city's looked at having a third-party private oper- operation of the ice rink. And that's an area that struggles. And the key when I was a county commissioner was we looked at 
the details on trying to have an effective management arrangement. We did this with the Interest Bank Arena. Uh, the Interest Bank Arena had a overage maintenance fund. It's been drawn down some, but uh, it has not. There has not been a penny of county tax money used to operate the Interest Bank Arena on a continuing operating basis since the the countywide sales tax was terminated. I think it was back around 2010. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I would. It, the, the devil is in the details, and the city, in my view, has has not done a good job because they're more focused on the the next. Uh, uh, ribbon cutting as opposed to taking care of what they've already got. John, you've, I think you've got some thoughts on this. Well, Celestra said, who's a member of our City Century 2 committee, uh, has contacted, has been in touch with the, the city manager, and the city manager advises her that he hasn't spent any funds, uh, appreciable funds, uh, to maintain Century 2 since 2009. Why? I mean, you know. and, and unless there's some other plan, basically. And, you know, the uh, getting... It it uh, it's in, in my view it's it's just unfortunate we uh, we and um, we have probably a half dozen or handful of people who basically call the shots on redevelopment downtown. You know when you uh, the chamber lobbyist Jason Watkins when he was testifying at Topeka the twenty fourth, he said the Century Two issue should be handled at the ballot box the same manner as the voters uh, replaced Mayor Jeff Longwell with the, the new mayor, Dr. Brandon Whipple. Might, might remind folks that uh, that if they want to see people have an opportunity to vote on, on issues like Save Century 2 and the public library, that we have three city council seats that are open for re-election in November. So this needs to be an issue that is, is, is uh, uh, well vetted, and that it need, those those whether whether allowing people to vote and have a say in their own historic buildings needs to be a political issue to going forward. Well, I think it is going to be something that a lot of candidates and a lot of people focus on when they go to the ballot box this fall for some of the city council seats. My big question: We have a caller on the line. I want to take as well and get. I mean, it, me coming in, and if I was voting on this issue, my big question would be: uh, Over the last few years, outside of again last year. Did it hold its own financially with enough events coming in to pay for the upkeep of it, for the team of it? I know some of the options have been to privatize maybe the management of it to still have the building and have a professional team come in that knows how to bring more events into the venue. But did it hold its own financially with bringing enough events to want to keep it, or was it just sitting vacant? Andy, one of the compelling reasons we were able to have a very successful petition drive, we started mid-January, and we had almost Every weekend there were events at Century 2, and the people holding the events were saying, hey, we want to save this venue. We want to be continue to be able to use it. Sure. Would you guys come down here? And we circulated petitions. We were collecting hundreds of signatures each week at shows at Century 2. Now, of course, when the pandemic hit, when the China flu arrived, we had to, uh, everything shut down. We had to terminate our petition drive from the middle, basically about the third week of March, Till about almost the middle of May, so we lost. We had 180 days to petition. There was no, um, we we had no. We, we lost about seven weeks of petition time with some of the best weather, and our petition drive literally ground to a halt. We didn't have 12,000 signatures. We had to restart it in May because of the because of the pandemic and the shutdown. So I think the first quarter for Century Two actually was almost fairly normal. Of course, the rest of the year was a total wipeout and. Uh, so th- the numbers are going to be reflected accordingly. Can we come back to that? 
I would hope so, but it's going to take leadership, and that's what's failing here, Andy. Yeah. Our city hall is they are deadlocked on on issues in terms of who's going to be where and who gets this perk and that perk, but they seem to be consistent in attacking folks who are doing nothing more than signing signing petitions and trying to get issues. Let the people have a say and let the people decide. They're unified in opposing us, and it seems doesn't matter whether they're on the left side of the council or the right side of the council. We, we just get, uh, I, I, I'm just mystified why they seem to be so clueless as to how the public feels. Yeah, I do want to get into some of the, the investments and some of the renovations we've been doing downtown and kind of what's going to happen, because there's a lot of new renovations that we're seeing and a lot of stuff that is downtown. So I want to get to that in a second. We do have a phone call on the line, though, so let's go to that at 316-721-8255. Line number one, good morning, who's this? Hey, Andy, Sean. Sean, what's going on, sir? Hey, uh, well, it's a beautiful day, and I'm <clears throat> I'm enjoying myself a nice hot cup of Gender-neutral coffee. Hey, there you go. It's, it's got to be gender-neutral for sure. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I wanted to comment on this uh, on this uh, topic involving Century 2 in the main library. You know, <clears throat> I can remember when that building was under construction, and uh, I believe I was three years old, so it would have been back in 1968 when I saw it when it was half, just half-built. So, and it looked like a pretty big thing to a three-year-old boy. But anyway, um, <clears throat> just because a building is old doesn't mean it's got to be torn down, especially if it's got a solid frame and foundation. And Century 2 is an iconic structure. And, you know, uh, New York City's got the Brooklyn Bridge and uh, the, the uh, 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 Empire State Building, and they're much older, uh, they're much older structures than Century 2. So just because, you know, it's got some problems, those problems can be fixed, and that building can be repurposed. Because I know somebody out there could figure out what to do with it. I mean, if we got to call Donald Trump, let's call Donald Trump <laughs> and ask him for some help. There we go. I'm sure he could, he, could, he could turn that area into a pretty hot spot. And then you got the library. Uh, I don't remember when the library was built. Um, does anybody there know? It was built uh, right after Century Two. It was just contiguous, basically. Okay, and, 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 and actually, if I can jump in, they were—they're not only uh, basically built at the same time, but they are connected physically. So, if you take out one or either of the two buildings, uh, you'd have problems yeah, with the both. remaining structure. They're—they're they're connected. Yeah, yeah, that's—I I agree. And yeah. I can remember hearing uh, a few years ago that. Uh, or several years ago, anyway, that uh, I believe the uh, when that library when it uh, after it opened, it, it won a national award for architectural architectural design. That's true. So uh, interesting. And, Absolutely. Uh, I get really frustrated with how it seemed to me the lack of vision among our city leaders when it comes to uh, uh, preserving uh, um, historic structures. I mean, they've torn down so many buildings downtown. And you got plenty of room down there with all the parking lots to uh, get into a big uh, construction projects. And you don't need to take down Century Two uh, and the main library to, uh, uh, you know, build a forty-story tall hotel. You can build that somewhere else downtown. So okay. I mean, <clears throat> whatever we got to do, I, I'm pretty serious. I'm serious about this. You know, hire a law firm. Uh, 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 
reach out to Donald Trump and see what he can do to help. I'm pretty serious about that. We'll make it into the Trump Century 2 building. That's right. That's right. No, I like that. Sean, I appreciate that. It's it's some great points for sure. Uh, My next question would be, talk about the uniqueness of Century 2 compared to the other venues. As As you mentioned, I mean, we have a lot of venues in town and different sizes based on the different shows or performances or things that we're doing as well. I mean, we have everything from the large venue with Interest Bank Arena. We have uh, just a step down with Hartman Arena, just uh, you know down the road a little ways. We have the Orpheum Theater. We have the Cotillion for the smaller venue stuff. I mean, we have a lot of venues already. What makes Century 2 unique to have that as an, an, an additional place for entertainment to come to town? Well, you've, you've got to think of Century 2 as a multi- there's multiple parts. You've got the Mary Jane Keel Theater. You've got uh, the concert hall. You've got the area that can be held. I, I've attended events. Uh, we had President George W. Bush. Ironically enough, when I was a commissioner, uh, the Wichita Chamber sponsored and had him come in, and it was held at Century Two. It was a dinner. They had President, uh, then former President Bush, up on the stage, and uh, uh, and it accommodated everyone quite nicely. And in combination with the other facilities that they've the city's got the bob brown annex uh that's part of it this the building is unique the it is a landmark for our community and i think the caller hit on a really key point um this is century two and the and the main street library these are not new buildings they are old enough that they're on the historic register because you've got to be over 50 years of age but Compared to many other iconic structures, whether it's uh, Hoover Dam, whether it's the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, whether it's uh, Independence Hall in Philadelphia, these are landmarks for those communities and those, those, those parts of the country. And we really need to preserve, protect, and defend our heritage, Andy. Sure. And we have this opportunity with Bill Warren. He's going to come in. I believe they're going to bring structural engineers in. Uh, I'm not a structural engineer, but I was on in the building all the time. It was built. Uh, they did scaffolding built up uh, and all of the plaster, 20, 24, 25 carloads of plaster. On lath and plaster, this building is extremely well built. I will be shocked if they say it has that doesn't have good bones and can't be repurposed. One of the things that I noticed in the Riverside Riverfront leg, Legacy Group, uh, I think one of the last things in the world they had in mind is repurposing. Mm-hmm. There's no question in my mind repurposing that building. Uh, we're not against repurposing. We're not against uh, building a new this or that to, to supplement the Century 2. Sure. But let's take a look at what we had before we just bring the bulldozer in. This doesn't make any sense just to bulldoze, scrape, and certainly uh, the, 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 the architects, the contractors around town would love to build a brand new building. Sure. But let's look at that from the standpoint of what makes sense for the people. Bill Warren, if there's anyone in town, he's willing to come in for free and, and use his, his expertise in marketing and look at ideas on, on how, we can, how, how we can market that building, and we don't have to tear it down. Don't have to tear it down. That's an idea and, there. And I also want to point out, I'm not against tearing it down if the people vote for it. Sure. So uh, we're not, we're not, I'm not defending the building totally, basically, but let's 
let's do take a look at what we had before we just come in and scrape it to the ground. Sure. Let's go ahead and take a break here. When we come back, let's talk about the city itself, some of the renovations we've done in the city, some of the development that we've done downtown, and then compare that with Century 2 as well as we begin to wrap up hour number one. Plus, we got some phone calls on the line. Don't go anywhere. we got uh, the line starting to light up to talk about this, uh, ask questions as well. So we'd love to get your thoughts as we continue to discuss what the future of Century 2 may look like here in the community. All coming up right here on Candace Talk on the Big Talker, KQAM. Stay here. Welcome back into Candace Talk. Wrapping up hour number one goes by way too fast. Fastest two hours of radio on radio. Plus, you can find us on the live stream, facebook.com slash 1480kqam. If you want to watch radio, guys, you know, I always joked I got a face for radio and a voice for newspaper. So there is that. Uh, talking about Century 2 this hour. Got a big hour number two coming up here in a second as well. John Todd, Carl Peter, John hanging out in studio. One more segment. We got a few minutes left. And let's start off with a phone call here. Line number two. Good morning. Who's this? Uh, this is Frederick. Frederick, how are you, sir? Fine. I have a question for you and Mr. Peter John. As I understand, it could cost maybe $100,000, $200,000 to tear down both the library library, and also Century 2. Who is going to pay for it? Like the city that's broke and the county that's also broke? Well, it's, Thank it, you. I'll hang up. Yeah, I appreciate the question because you're absolutely right that uh, – uh, there would be costs involved in tearing down the building, but uh, you're way under in terms of the cost. We're talking millions, maybe tens of millions. Uh, the cost would be substantial. It would be primarily a city project. Uh, as Mr. Todd pointed out, uh, that both the city and county have helped fund some of the studies looking at uh, what they could, how they could uh, uh, tear down the structure as part of the Riverfront Legacy Group. But the cost, I, I, I have no idea... Uh, specifically on these buildings, but I, when I was on the county commission, we looked at tearing down the Britt Brown Arena out at the Kansas Coliseum, and we were looking at that time costs in the tens of millions, and that's a structure that is not nearly as well built, doesn't have as much uh, reinforced, it doesn't have the strength in terms of the design, and I, I, I think the costs of tearing down Century 2, plus the costs are significantly higher today, the amount of Federal Reserve inflation that's occurred since uh, 2010 when we were looking at the uh, Britt Brown Arena and the Kansas Coliseum Complex. Fortunately, that was repurposed, and of course, it's now part of WSU. Um, so we didn't have to do make that decision, and that I think was one of the better decisions that occurred while I was on the county commission. So um, I know Mr. Todd has a comment here. I want to give him the opportunity. John. I'd like to let people out there know that there's still time to call your Kansas House and State and Senate legislative representative. Ask them to let the people vote on House Bill 2233. Let the people vote. The citizens deserve the right to decide the, the, the fate of large historic municipally owned buildings like Century 2 and the former public library. Also, I would issue a call to the city council. Uh, we've tried to reach out a number of times and have never actually had much luck with this, but there's still time. We need, they need to engage the Save Century 2 people and, and, and see if we can find common ground. This is a, this is a, a, this is a wonderful opportunity, and, and there's still time to do it. And I would, I would, uh, I, I would encourage them to 
let us reach out and have discussion on this yeah. issue. And we got just about a minute left, so that's that's kind of my question is, where is the city at right now with their position? Are they just not worrying about it? I know that they said a discussion is kind of ongoing or ideas are still continuing, but what is the latest from the city that we've heard? Well, I would love to have a discussion with the city manager, with the council members, but since they sued me personally and Celestra said personally for circulating the petition, uh, I'm in court. I don't want to be in court. I'd rather settle this out of court. As I've said, Andy, this is an issue that should be decided in the court of public opinion, not in an appellate Kansas courtroom. So John Todd can maybe engage in that discussion. So other folks with Save Century 2 can do so. Unfortunately, I feel like my hands are tied. Interesting. Well, I think it's an opportunity for the city council to come on down. Uh, they, we invited them to, to the Save Century 2 uh, building where we had peti- people signing petitions. They need to hear what their people think. 17,265 represents 34% of the people who voted in the last municipal election. These people have, have issues that they want to discuss, basically, and they shouldn't be just, just thrown aside. Well, it's definitely going to be an ongoing discussion for sure as we move forward. And as you mentioned, it's going to be an issue, I think, that's going to lead to the uh, the political side for the next elections coming up as well. But that does it for us. We're out of time, my friends. Carl, Peter, John, John Todd, appreciate you guys very much. We'll have to do this again here real soon, and we'll continue the discussion with that coming up later as well. Hour number two of Kansas Talk coming up when we come back. Uh, Cedric County Sheriff Jeff Easter will chat with him. Plus, we'll talk about the special election for District Number 3 for the Wichita City Council with candidate Cindy Miles at the bottom of the hour to wrap up the show today. All coming up, lots more to get to here on Candace Talk for the Big Talker KQAM. Stay here. Hi, this is Phil Martinez at Phil's Coins. At the shop, we talk all the time about honesty and integrity. And in our shop, we've decided that honesty means nothing without integrity. So what I would tell you is that if you didn't bring your coins to Phil's Coins, honestly, you didn't get enough money for what you have. Come see us at Phil's Coins, 9344 West Central, or online at philscoins.com. This is Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier on the Big Talker KQAM. Welcome into Kansas Talk right here on the Big Talker. Hour number two of Kansas Talk right here on the Big Talker, 1480 AM and 1025 FM KQAM. Thanks for hanging out today on a Saturday morning. Lots of stuff to get to, lots of things to talk about here on the show, and we appreciate you hanging out. All presented by Phil's Coins, 9344 West Central Avenue. Buying, selling, and trading with honesty and integrity for all your silver and gold needs. Make sure to check them out. They are open right now until 2.30 this afternoon. Also online at philscoins.com. Be sure to check them out. We appreciate them. We'll chat with Phil again here on the program very soon. Thanks again to Carl Peter John. John Todd coming on the program last hour talking about Century 2. A big discussion. Now, it's not a discussion that I have necessarily jumped into because, honestly, I it has not been a big uh, deal for me one way or the other. Uh, but it's interesting, and I know it's going to be a big debate and a big discussion as a lot of people are very intrigued and involved in this conversation. So we've had them on. We'll try and get on the Wichita Chamber of Commerce and Jason Watkins on the program. It's been a while since we've chatted with him as well to get his thoughts as uh, we continue on. And we'll get some updates from the city council as well as we go on with this discussion. As they said, it may be a political issue going into the next election cycle. Speaking of the next election cycle, we do have a special election for District Number 3 of the Wichita City Council coming 
up next week. And Cindy Miles, one of the uh, candidates for that seat, uh, is joining us at the bottom of this this hour. So we'll look forward to chatting with her. Real quickly, an update from Washington, D.C. Roger Marshall tweeted out something yesterday as they're continuing on with their COVID relief bill. And his thoughts on how the bill's going so far with discussions. Okay, here we go. Voterama in the Senate cloakroom. I've snuck into one of the uh, phone booths here um, and stuck this box of donuts with me. There's one missing, and you know where that is. Um, but I've never seen the other donuts quite like this. Here we have in, in my bottom right hand a donut with a scoop of cookie dough on it, and then above it, yes, that's a donut with bacon on it. Kind of reminds me of this bill, lots of pork, bacon sizzling, and then this, uh, of course, there's just it's lots of sugar sweeteners for all the Democrats. So we'll be up here as long as we can fighting this $2 trillion we're borrowing from our grandchildren. Um, and again, just thanks for all the, the prayers and support uh, standing behind me as we try to fight for a better country. Thanks. All right, there it is. Well played, sir. Well played. That, uh, it was very cheesy, but I loved it. That was probably something that I would do if I was in Washington, D.C. I see this donut filled with pork and sugar and a bunch of crap, and that's exactly what this bill is as well. So it kind of fits as we're sitting up here, staying up late and eating donuts to try and stay awake while we continue to debate this COVID-19 relief bill. Well played, sir. Well played. Absolutely. We sat down just a day or so ago with Cedric County Sheriff Jeff Easter, and we talked a lot about what they've been up to over the last year with law enforcement during the COVID era. We talked about the uh, county jail with some of the outbreaks that we've had with COVID there, with crime rates in the community and more. We're excited to sit down and chat with him. This is our interview that we had with Cedric County Sheriff at Jeff Easter. Sheriff, how are you, my friend? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to talk to you. First off, I know it's been a wild year. Um, I'm sure law enforcement has had to do a lot of adaptation over the last year with COVID, haven't they? Oh yeah, it's been um, it's it's been a crazy year, and it is a uh, in the beginning, uh, you know, starting last March to about August September uh, is just ever evolving all the time. I mean, every week was some uh, different type of issue going on, some type of change in mask orders and this orders and those orders and it, it was pretty hectic sure just how you guys do law enforcement with regular traffic stops with going into businesses or doing domestic calls if you get a call to a home i mean talk about some of the changes on uh, policy ways how you guys had to manage those situations with the wearing masks or wearing gloves or protecting your guys self but at the same time trying to protect the community when you in, uh, get involved with them yeah so those were some things that we had to work through. You know, in law enforcement, you have, you, you think about officer safety as well. Uh, and so, you know, there was never any um, uh, policy or anything that was put out to tell deputies that they absolutely had to wear the masks mm -hmm. the entire time they're working. Wow. Uh, that was a, a, a choice just because of the officer safety stuff. Uh, on car stops, um, no, we're not wearing the mask because it can... Um, inhibit uh, some of our vision, our peripheral vision, those type of things. If they chose to wear the mask, that's fine. Right. But I did not force them to do that. When they made domestic calls, those type of things, or just regular report calls, yeah, they were wearing masks, maintaining the six-foot distance, those type of things. But if it was a domestic call, uh, again, an officer safety issue, that was their choice. The one thing that we told them that they absolutely had to do uh, is if they're not on a call, you know, they're going to lunch, they're going – uh, someplace that's not call related. Sure. But yes, they have to uh, follow the mask order and they'll have to wear that mask inside that business. But when it came to uh, everyday duties, um, you know, it was, sure. it was hard to work through. It was a little challenging, I bet. Yeah. yeah. And then inside the jail uh, was different because that's a 
congregated area. And so we had put out uh, several orders that if they're going to have any inmate contact, if they're going to have, they have to move inmates, those type of things, then they need to wear a mask. Sure. Um, that's the place where we got hit the hardest in August. Sure. Uh, with We had an outbreak of COVID in there and amongst the inmates and uh, deputies. I was going to say, you guys have done relatively well in the in the jail compared to like the state facilities that have had some major outbreaks and they've had they've had a lot of issues with COVID. Uh, you guys had some, but uh, I mean, comparatively, you guys actually did relatively well, didn't you? We did. We had an outbreak and, you know, we were monitoring folks when they were coming in. Um, this individual that came in was uh, didn't have any symptoms or anything. Uh, he developed them, mm-hmm. uh, but he was also working in the trustee pod, which means he went around the uh, the jail delivering food, those type of things, and it spread like wildfire. Wow. And so that was absolutely the biggest challenge we had, trying to uh, isolate uh, inmates that um, had it, isolate inmates that had been around other people that had it, and then have a regular general population. And, you know, we're just not built for that. Sure. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we brought in um, Kansas Department of Health to help us with it. Uh, we tested uh, over a thousand people. Now, some of them stayed, some of them left, those type of things. But, you know, in, in sure. raw numbers, we had around 985 that tested positive. Some of them were still with us, some of them weren't. Wow. Um, wow. But if anybody had, and, and if they were over 65 or had other type of health issues, that we immediately housed them in the clinic. And if they started showing any type of uh, real harsh symptoms, we took them straight to the hospital. We didn't even... Didn't even um, try. No, we didn't even mess around with those folks. And so... Uh, you know, I mean, it, in the end, um, there's a lot of work. Inmates upset at us. Uh, inmates that refuse to wear the mask. We would probably only have about 10% of the inmates will even wear the mask. And they get masks and they get replacement masks if they want. Wow. Uh, but they're not complying whatsoever. And so that causes problems for us. And then, I, you know, I get pressure from the outside of, well, uh, then you need to punish them for that. You need to uh, do something with them. Do what? Do what? Yeah. I mean, they're they're already being punished. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you there, mean. You do. There is. So you want me to put them in a cell uh, and isolate them in that cell for 23 hours a day, so they can only come out for an hour a day by themselves because they might have contacted somebody who had COVID. Yeah. yeah. That's not going to work. Uh, we we did that originally with the folks that uh, we knew tested positive for COVID, and they were throwing a fit because mm. they didn't do anything wrong. Right. And they were refusing to rack back down. Uh, they were throwing stuff at us when we tried to get them to rack back down. Uh, and it just came to the point where we contacted the CDC and they recommended, yeah, do, do not do that. Wow. They, they can be out amongst themselves. Just try to keep them isolated in a certain section or certain pod. But do not isolate them in a, in a cell. And, and we immediately quit that. Talk about the challenges you guys have had to go through with the delay in the court system as well. I know that's been one of the reasons why we've had to extend the emergency declaration yeah. in the state. Uh, just because people can't get to court to actually see things right now. And I know that's causing a backlog on your end as well. Yeah. So uh, Mark Bennett and I, Mark Bennett, the DA, uh, have been working very closely on this issue along with the judges here uh, in Cedric County. It is a uh, it's a big mess, right. uh, being honest with you. You know, the... Uh, I have 118 murders that are waiting on to go to trial. Wow. Um, you know, generally we have 60 to 70 because of the, the way the system works. Uh, it's all backlog. And so most of the folks that are sitting there in jail are all very serious felonies with high bonds. They're not getting out. And so our jail population has boomed again. Sure. Simply because no one's getting through the system. So the other, the real issue with that is, is how do we get started again? And so uh, Mr. Bennett introduced a bill to the legislation that I testified on. 
having to do with speedy trial because you only have 150 days for speedy trial. They've suspended that right now. The Supreme Court has. Right. But if they just lift it, um, that's a huge issue because you'll never get all these folks, 118 murders, you're not going to get through trial in 150 days, which means in mm -hmm. Kansas, we'd have to release them. Sure. And then recharge them uh, because if they stay in, in jail one day longer than 150 days, it's unconstitutional. It's technically. unconstitutional. Right. The case is over with. You can never charge them again. Wow. So uh, we we had asked for a three-year moratorium on it. Uh, hopefully it wouldn't take that long, but it's going to take a while for the system to catch back up, even in the smaller counties where they maybe only have seven or eight uh, big cases. Uh, they'll never get those done in a year because of those issues. The right. other problem with it is uh, Mark talked about uh, for 115 murder trials, they'd have to bring in uh, 5,300 jurors. Well, how are you going to get fifty three hundred jurors to come in under COVID, that type of stuff, right. and and say, yeah, you'll be safe in here while we're doing this trial. So it's it's a huge issue, but yes, it's a big backlog. Uh, it you know our jail's overcrowded anyway. This is adding to that, but you're also talking about very violent people uh, that are now staying in there for an extended period of time. Uh, so they're getting um, antsy, antsy. They're yeah. you know acting out. Uh, because some of them are looking at life in prison, um, so they have nothing really to care about. They don't care, and so they're acting out towards our deputies, other inmates. Our assaults have gone up with inmates. Oh my I mean, gosh, it's, it's a mess. I can imagine, and I can imagine the trial itself is going to be more complicated. Trying to get all the evidence that made, I mean, is now almost a year old, or trying to get all the witnesses that are now, you know, in a year later, trying to remember all the actualities that happened during the incident. I mean, it's going to complicate the entire system all the way down the line. Yeah, from a case standpoint, it's not good either. Yeah, um, because you might have witnesses that have moved out of state, have died, um, or you know, just finally decided I don't want to cooperate anymore because they've been threatened in some of these murder cases. So. Yeah, it causes uh, a lot of issues, and it's not something the criminal justice system has ever faced before. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like you can go back and say, okay, how did you handle this the last time? Uh, it's all, uh, all of us are trying to work together to make this work uh, in the safest manner. And also, you know, everybody has uh, the right to a fair trial. Sure. Uh, everybody has the right to face their accuser. You know, I've been asked about, why can't you start doing these over Zoom? Well, there's certain law, case law and, and, constitutional law that says they have the right to have a trial in a courtroom and face their accuser. Exactly. Uh, Zoom doesn't really provide that. <laughs> and so, uh, you, you know, we'd have to really work through, basically have a case that you tried it on and see if it upheld in the court. And if it doesn't, then you got to do it all over again. And no one's really, really wanting to push that envelope because it is very clear what the law states. Right. Well, it's a scary thought. I, I do not envy you guys in any way, shape, or form on that front. The president or the jail itself that you that you do manage, I mean, staffing-wise right now, I've heard that you guys have a bit of a shortage there as oh, yeah. well, don't you? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, generally uh, when I first came here and even, you know, talking to the sheriffs before, they'd run between 20 and 40 short until a class came in, and then it'd go down and then go back up. Sure. Um, we're 84 down right now. Wow. Uh, uh, deputies inside the facility. And so... We've been averaging between 60 and 75 down once we graduate a class. Then, you know, and we cause some of that issue ourselves uh, because a lot of people that, that come into the jail are too young to become law enforcement officers or they want that as first bef before they become law enforcement officers. Well, we don't have near the people wanting to be law enforcement officers right now. Mm -hmm. So if they don't want to be in law enforcement, they're not coming into the jail to work. Now, the folks that do come in there and work, um, a lot of them go to different to, to out to the road for us to area law enforcement 
uh, or back to their hometowns where they become involved in law enforcement. The other aspect of it is, is, is COVID has really caused uh, a lot of stress uh, with my folks uh, for all the reasons we just talked about. Right. And I've seen, well, we've had about five or six deputies in this last year that have suffered from mental illness crises while at work. Uh, so the stress levels are very high and uh, overtime is outrageous and folks are saying, I can go work at Lowe's or some other place, uh, make about as much money and don't have to put up with the stress. Wow. I don't necessarily blame them for that, um, but you know, we try to emphasize to them how important they are to society, how important their job is extremely critical because if we don't have them, these folks are roaming the streets and, and victimizing more people. Um, so it, that role is underemphasized, sure. uh, the detention deputy and the, and the whole detention process, but it's one of the mo- most important and key functions that we do in society and with the sheriff's office. You're right. We need to show and thank them for what they do every day, just trying to keep you know people off the street, which is really concerning. Let's talk about the streets for a second. Uh, we're talking with Central County Sheriff Jeff Easter. Let's talk about over the last year what you've seen just on the streets, an increase in uh, has there been an increase in crime due to layoffs or financial hardships? Has there been an increase? Obviously, we've seen a lot of stories about mental illness, like you mentioned, with depression or maybe addiction to certain substances. I mean, what's the big focus on the streets right now trying to keep everybody safe? Yeah, so we really haven't uh, experienced a huge increase in burglaries, larcenies, those type of crimes okay. uh, out in the county. Uh, it's running about steady, and it's not – I mean, any one burglary or larceny is too much. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Um, but – it's, it's not increasing. Um, what we are seeing an increase in is uh, the amount of methamphetamine that we're seizing off the streets, the amount of addiction issues uh, that are creating uh, mental crisis issues, and the amount of calls we're having to make because of mental crisis, which most of it's drug-induced. And so those are really the big issues that we're facing right now. I'm glad you mentioned that because we could probably do an entire show talking about just the drugs in, in the area, and I know that you focus a lot of attention on that, but is meth the really big thing around here? What are the big drugs that you usually see in the streets? Yeah, methamphetamine is, really? is king here. Where and does it come from? Is it is the stuff come from the Mexico area? Is it brewed around here locally? I mean, No, it's all coming from Mexico. Really? Um, several years ago when Kansas passed a great law that, basically said you can't buy more than two boxes of pseudofedrin it stopped all of the homemade labs mm. and so meth isn't made here anymore it all comes from mexico now what about human trafficking is that still an issue around this area too human trafficking is an issue uh it does tie back to the drug world the gang world those type of things and so you know we have quite a few girls that are runaways uh, they hook up with the wrong people they get them addicted to drugs they have sex with them and then they human traffic them to other parts of the united states and so uh, those things still take place. I will tell you that predator stuff online uh, has steadily grown, but because more people were home, our ICAC unit down at EMCU have seen a major increase in internet crimes against children. Sure. Uh, and so that's the other population uh, in the jail because those, got, those folks are accused of very serious crimes, predator-type crimes. They stay in there. We have two whole pods full of accused sex offenders. Wow. Uh, so... Uh, those crimes are going up as well. You're blowing my mind with a lot of this stuff, what's going on in the community. So I, I can't thank you guys enough for what you do with that. Uh, just speculation, Have you? did you see an increase, decrease? Did it stay pretty steady between different administrations at the federal level, between building the wall down at the border with President Donald Trump or prior to that during the Barack Obama administration? Did, you, did we see locally here an increase when it came to drug trafficking, human trafficking in the area based on what was coming up from Mexico, or was it still pretty steady? No, it's, it's steady. Really? Um, yeah, the, you know, I, 
I understand building the wall and those type of things. One of the arguments I made to both senators here from from uh, the state of Kansas was we have got to increase border security because of the amount of narcotics that are coming into this country. This this country is addicted to narcotics, right? And is addicted to methamphetamine. Yep. And it is overwhelming our systems at this point. When you look at seventy three percent of our population in the jail, and we take the census about every two weeks. Is addict is has some type of an addiction. Thirty three percent have a mental health issue, and when you look at methamphetamine, uh, when you look at the pictures and everything, and you see the sores and all that other stuff, well, the methamphetamine is man made, so it's eating them from the inside out, which right. also means it eats their brain. So when we look at uh, the fact that mental health issues are increasing tremendously, a lot of it is meth induced because they're losing function in their brain that emulates mental health issues, and they'll never get that back. Wow, and yeah. So. Uh, the heroin issue is here, uh, but it's not like on some of the coasts where they're having major issues. We do have issues with it here, but it's all about methamphetamine at this point. Last couple of minutes before we let you go, I know that you're extremely busy, Sheriff Jeff Easter, but let's talk about COVID when it came to the mandates. There was a discussion before about having law enforcement enforce the mask mandates in the community. Was that something, and I know that you made a comment before saying that we just don't have time to do something like that, but uh, did they come to you? Did they approach you about trying to enforce mask mandates? And uh, did you guys do end up doing any enforcement in the community regarding masks around here? Yeah, so that's kind of a twofold question. You know, the the commissioners had a very tough job trying to weigh public safety, economy, all these other things. And so, you know, we were approached about what we thought of enforcing a mask mandate where we actually issued citations, those type of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I just frankly told them I wasn't supportive of it, that you're treating this as a crime uh, which I don't think is, first off, the DA and I didn't think it was even enforceable by state law. Right. And so while we're having those discussions, our issues with it were raised at the state level. They brought it down to being a civil matter. Uh, that took law enforcement out of it. Uh, and to be honest with you, I don't think the citizens wanted to pay us from the informa- you know, from the phone calls I got right. uh, to go around and cite people because they weren't wearing a mask. They're worried about real crime. Exactly. Uh, worried about the burglaries of the residences, the murders, the uh, the drugs issues. And so, you know, in the end, it worked out. It was mainly, uh, it wasn't like you're going to cite somebody in Dillon's. Right. Um, but, you know, businesses that weren't complying with the rules that were there, uh, the opportunity was there to cite them for civil violations. Interesting. Uh, and not criminal law violations, which uh, I supported that. Sure. Absolutely. Last question before we let you go. Uh, but over the last year as well, we've also had a discussion on law enforcement, some places wanting to, quote unquote, defund the police, wanting to revamp police uh, and law enforcement, and how they actually do things. But there was a big push about trying to get social workers to actually show up for domestic cases if there wasn't violence to try and relieve some of the duties from law enforcement. But what's your thoughts on the whole conversation about revamping how law enforcement handles issues? And should uh, social workers be involved in that to some degree? Or is that the duty of law enforcement to take care of an issue? So I've been doing this for 31 years. And over time, more stuff has been shoved over to law enforcement to take care of. Yeah. And these are the social issues, which that's not what we're really there to do. Right. But we have to take it on because that's what we were facing every day. So we've, we've encompassed the fact that um, or embraced the fact that, hey, we, we got to take this on. Now, do we have the expertise to be able to do some of this stuff? No, we do not. Uh, and we can talk about training. We can talk about training. Uh, well, if you want us to be trained to the level of a social worker, that means we, we need to send them to the social worker uh, class, we need to get them a bachelor's degree and a master's degree because most of those folks have a master's degree to be able to do this. That's sure. not feasible. Right. And so uh, when we talk about defund the police, uh, we don't hear that much here, thank goodness. 
And I will tell you, if we can get crime to go down, not 1,400 inmates in the jail, blah, 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 <laughs> uh, and we want to shift some money uh, over to putting social workers with the sheriff's office to make some of these calls. Right now, I, I would be supportive of that. Right now, we have a DCF uh, licensed worker uh, that works with within the sheriff's office that we pay for, and we're seeing good din- dividends out of that sure. to help families and kids within the county that are experiencing some issues. So I know it will work. ICT-1 in Wichita is another one that is working with a combination uh, of law enforcement, EMS or fire, and uh, a comm care worker. So those work, but it takes money. And so, um, yeah, you know, we're talking about right now uh, looking at uh, some other type of social workers uh, to be embedded within the sheriff's office uh, to work on those type of issues, the domestic violent calls, those type of things, and mainly the mental health crisis calls. Sure. Uh, it's good we're talking about it. And as you mentioned, at, le- at least we don't have a huge issue around that here in the community. We're blessed, I think, that way to where we don't have a whole lot of problems. But uh, to relieve some of the duties from you guys, I think, is a good thing because you're there to stop major crime going on in the community. So the fact that uh, you don't have to make some of those calls to where it's just kind of a, a disagreement between couples sort of thing, I think would be a really good thought. Uh, Cedric County Sheriff Jeff Easter, we appreciate the time very much, my friend. Keep it up. I know you guys are overly stressed, overly worked half the time, so we appreciate everything you guys do. We'll get you back in here and talk some more about this soon. Thank you very much. There it is. Now, Cedric County Sheriff Jeff Easter. We sat down with him a couple days ago. We appreciate his time very much. Great information. We didn't want to stop. I mean, we just kept going. So we appreciate all the time that he gave us as we talked about a lot of, I believe, important things in the community. And we'll get him back on the program again here real soon. When we come back, we'll have Cindy Miles, candidate for District Number 3 for the Wichita City Council. Plus, we'll get a legislative update. A big day and a big week for Republicans and conservatives, pro-gun, pro-Second Amendment advocates across the state as well. We'll talk about all that and more. Plus, where are we at with COVID-19 distribution and individuals with pre-existing health conditions? Is that an issue for the Democrats and Governor Kelly in the state as we continue on with vaccines as well? All that and more coming up to wrap up the show for Kansas Talk here on the Big Talker KQAM. Stay here. to Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back in. Yes, you are hanging out with Kansas Talk. I'm Andy Hoosier. Great to have you for the ride today for a Saturday morning trying to get you up and moving. And what a show we've had so far today. Carl Peter John, John Todd talking about Century 2 issues, which of course may be a big issue going into the next couple of elections in the local area for the city council. What's that going to look like for the future? Plus, we just sat down with Sheriff Jeff Easter for Cedric County. And appreciate his time very much as well. We'll have some legislative updates here for you in a minute from Topeka as we talk about some big news for the Second Amendment advocates. Good news, lowering the age for concealed carry down from 21 to the age of 18. Uh, we kind of already had that, which is why it's kind of a dumb bill and why the media is losing their minds over it. But it's good news just because you could open carry at the age of 18. You just couldn't wear a coat and conceal carry. How dare you carry a firearm concealed? You just need to let everybody know about it. Uh, plus, we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about that. Plus, parts of the other bill as well that kind of expand the reciprocity, us accepting other concealed carry in the state if people are traveling here. Plus, hoping other states actually continue to accept our reciprocity as well. So, we'll get to end all that and more 
And I think maybe next week we'll get State Representative Stephen Owens back on the program uh, to chat about that bill because I know he and Blake Carpenter carried that one, and it's a big deal. So that one goes to the State Senate. We'll get an update from all that and more here in just a little bit. But let's get a city update as we have some uh, special times going on in the city of Wichita. Now, that does not mean the city council member Brian Fry is joining us when usually that's his sounder. So we need to get him on the show in the next week or so and get another update from him. But as you know, a special election uh, ish uh, or special appointment, I guess we could say, is coming up this next week for district number three on the Wichita City Council after James Clendenin stepped down with all these shenanigans. And we've talked about that plenty of times. We don't need to go down that road right now. But there are a list of candidates for this seat. And uh, who's going to fill district number three for Wichita City Council? So excited to have on one of those candidates right now with us. Cindy Miles is joining us. Cindy, how are you, my friend? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Andy? I am living the dream. I appreciate you very much coming on the program. We are just a week away from them making a decision. How are you feeling going into this next week? Well, I have kind of put it over in God's hands, and what will be will be. But I'm I'm excited about the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a, a big one. It's unfortunate with the circumstances how this all came to be, but uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how we move forward. Before we get into the seat itself and, and the platform and what you're wanting to do, uh, for those that may not know you very well or may not know about your, your candidacy or your platform, talk about yourself a little bit and what led you up to want to run for the seat. Well, so I, uh, I've, I've lived in this district for about 20 years, ever since I moved to Wichita from Tulsa. And I have been out doing a lot of work in the community, volunteer work. I've been involved in um, the Mental Health and Substance Abuse Coalition and combating child abuse and a whole lot of other things. And then I've, I've also uh, served on a lot of planning initiatives, whether it was developing a comprehensive plan for the city and the county. I uh, currently am a commissioner on the Metropolitan Area Planning Commission. And I'm really just passionate about making a difference out there in the community and impacting people's lives. No, absolutely. Uh, I, and this would definitely be a job to do so. Uh, have you noticed, I mean, being involved in so many things, being involved in the community and in politics, that politics is really coming back down to a local level that we can actually have more of an influence at the local level, whether it's the city council, the county commission, even the state legislature a little bit. But being involved locally here gives us so much more opportunity to really make a difference, can't we? Well, I, I absolutely agree, Andy. And you know, I think this is an opportunity for people to get out and really advocate for what's important for them in the community. Locally, that's, uh, that's pretty simple to do. Yeah, yeah. Talk about what issues you want to address as a city council person. Um, I'm sure COVID is obviously a big thing, which we need to address, and I want to talk to you about that in a minute as well. But your platform, what would you like to really focus on in your campaign and if you become a city council person? Yeah, so certainly – Restoring our economy after COVID and everything else that's happened is, is certainly a big issue, and I think that has to be on top of mind for everybody. But, you know, because I've been involved in a lot of things and got to look at a lot of issues, my priorities really are, are safety and security for the district and whether that's making sure that we have adequate law enforcement and fire or, again, I mentioned the Mental Health and Substance Abuse Coalition and the impact, you know, addressing that those particular issues related to that impact crime and domestic violence and, and child abuse and homeless and poverty, which are things that we see in District 3 and certainly need to be addressed. So I think doing that work can help that. Neighborhood revitalization, of course, is big on my list. You know, we're looking at places for people and how we do infill projects. We have in our district 41% of those 
properties where people live or rental properties. So how do we increase home ownership and, and how do we provide, uh, you know, more affordable housing in the area? So those, those are certainly all, everything tied to neighborhood revitalization is important to me. And then development, whether it's business development, economic development, recruiting people, uh, businesses to the, to the area, trying to look at the Broadway corridor and how do we improve that. You know, what do we do about the, the lack of grocery stores and the food deserts that we have in the district? Those are all mm-hmm. huge to me. And, you know, transportation is always a big issue as well, because I know we have people in this district that depend heavily on the mass transit system. And I, I, I think our mass transit system is, is somewhat broken. I'm glad you mentioned all those. One of those that definitely sticks out that we've talked about is those food deserts. And uh, talk about District 3. Do you have some food deserts in your district uh, for the, for that area? And what are some ideas? What can we do to start bringing some grocery stores or at least some type of availability other than individuals going to a dollar store or a gas station to get their food? Because that's not helping the community in any ways when it comes to health. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely correct. And, and you know, we, we have quite a bit of area of food deserts in this district. And I know we recently lost the save a lot. I was out in Rose Hill the other day to look at a super dollar general that they have out in Rose Hill that helps to address their needs. It, it offers meat and dairy and fresh produce besides the other things that you find at Dollar General. So I certainly think that that might be a resolution. I know the city of Wichita has just introduced a uh, uh, master food plan, or at least Becky Tuttle and the the middle the wellness co- coalition, health and wellness coalition have introduced that master plan. So, uh, like to talk more about you know how that can impact those food deserts. And I think we've got to come up with some creative solutions. People reach out to me about how to, how we're going to address these issues and. And it's going to require creative solutions. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking with Cindy Miles, candidate for District Number 3 for the Wichita City Council. Let's talk about property uh, for a minute. You mentioned property, uh, just the value of the property. I saw a study, I, what was it, earlier this week, late last week, that Wichita is number 3 or number 5 in the nation for the least amount of real estate available in the country, which is insane. So real estate prices obviously going up. Uh, do you anticipate that trend to continue? Uh, I mean, what's the cause of that, do you think? Is it because we're booming? Is it just because there are a lot of people moving around here, which is would be a good thing? But what can we do to uh, keep property values high, but at the same time, let's not have property taxes continue to rise as well? Well, yeah, property taxes is a big issue. And I, I think I've had conversations with, with realtors and developers, and some of the challenges that we face is that we have young families that are now deciding that they want to buy homes, and there's a particular price range that they're really looking in from 150 to maybe $180,000, and that's where we're seeing the, the shortage of houses that are available. I know I have a son that's been trying to buy a house for two years in that price range for his family, and he can't get out there fast enough. So we, we've got to create more of those, those affordable houses. And, and yet I hear also from some of the developers that – it's just so costly to create houses in that price range that they uh, they don't 
they don't want to build in that price range. So we certainly have got to look at how do we address that issue and open up more more housing stock. Sure. Let's go into some of the entertainment. We just built the the new baseball stadium last year. Luckily, hopefully we get to actually use it this year, which it sounds like we're actually going to be able to. Uh, things are starting to slowly open again with COVID-19. So maybe we can get some uh, some concerts and stuff back at you know Century 2 or at Interest Bank Arena or uh, some of the venues around here. But the revitalization of downtown how much of that should we focus on right now? Are we in a good spot there? And do you think uh, that's going to bring a lot of new business and or uh, visitation to the Wichita area? Well, I was involved in helping to create the Delano District, the updated Delano District master plan. So I'm excited about the baseball field and hopefully the uh, business that that can bring to the area. And I, and I think we still need to continue to focus on downtown development. I think it may take a little bit longer because of the impact of COVID and how that's impacted so many of our businesses, I want to encourage people to get downtown and or out to other businesses in our community and to support those businesses, especially now. They've had struggles. I know my husband and I, we get out every Friday night. We we do the hashtag Wichita restaurant tour and try to visit a new restaurant Ooh. every single Friday just to support and, you know, do something like that. Get out there and support our businesses. Yeah, and that's the big question now. I know that we're getting to the tail end of COVID, and the city hasn't had a whole lot to do with it because the county health department and the county commissioners have been making most of the decisions. But your thoughts when it comes to this point in time, is it time to open up the city of Wichita again after COVID? I, I think we do have to start opening. I think our businesses have suffered, and I think we need to continue to take precautions, of course, in whatever way that we can take personal responsibility, but we, we have to have our businesses back open. Of course, they're, you know, they're suffering and, uh, and we want them to survive. I know that we've lost a, a lot of uh, businesses and, and I, I personally work a lot with nonprofit organizations as well. And I've seen some of those shut down also. And so we've got to get things back to somewhat of a normal environment. A semi-norm. I like that. It's slowly at least getting back up to where we need to. One big thing that's that will correct. be exactly one big thing that's going to be coming up over this next year will, of course, be the city budget because of COVID. We've seen a lot of the the sales tax that took a hit, a lot of uh, more expenditure for the city. I mean, we're looking at shortfalls potentially. We're looking at needing to squeeze that budget a little bit. If you do get on the city council, what would you like to see? How would you like to have that budget discussion happen for the city for us to be able to move forward and hopefully not cut a whole lot of things? But are we looking at potential tax increases? Are we looking at budget cuts? What could we see for the budget over the next year or so? So I, I, I personally am not supportive of tax increases, and I think most people don't want to see our, our taxes increase. I think the evaluate, property evaluations that have come out from the county in the last couple of weeks will, will simply attest to the fact that people don't want to see increases. I think we'll just have to be creative about what budget cuts are made uh, certainly, you know, where where can things uh, be cut that won't have as big of an impact on other things, uh, you know, I think is important. But I think it's definitely going to be a difficult year in looking at those tax cuts. On another note, let's get out and continue to support our golf, golf courses mm. that are city-owned because I was sitting in a, a city council meeting the other day and and 
they were reporting that our golf courses had done an outstanding job of bringing in revenue over the past year. So if we can keep that up, we can continue to bring some of that revenue in. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Last question before we let you go, Cindy Miles, candidate for district number three for the Wichita City Council. Talk about the process this has been so far with this special election, kind of a unique situation. We had some interviews with uh, the candidates with you with the city council. They make their decision, but uh, is it just a simple majority vote from the city council? Does the general public have any say in this process? Talk about how this has gone so far. The only say that the general public has is, you know, and I would encourage them to send an email to their city council person or you know, reach out to them by phone and encourage them to vote for whoever it is that you feel like would be the best representative for for the district. Other than that, um, you know, the district advisory board went through a process and made a recommendation to the city council. And really, it would just be up to the city council to choose the the most qualified and the best person that can serve this district. And not only this district, but the city of Wichita, because you have to remember that whoever sits in this seat and every other city council seat, the votes that they hold impact, in some cases, everybody in the city. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a big one. It's going to be a large impact for a long time, I think, uh, especially as we mentioned before that, uh, I mean, politics coming back down to this local level, city council, the school boards, the county commission, these are all things that are going to have major impacts in the community moving forward with a lot of the decisions going on on grander scales. Cindy, uh, Cindy Miles, candidate for district number three, Wichita City Council. Good luck with next week. Hopefully it works out and hopefully we can talk again here real soon. Okay, thank you, Andy. Have a wonderful day. You as well. Appreciate the time very much, and good luck to the election on that front. We'll take a break. We'll wrap up the show today. Lots to get to here as we wrap up the last little bit of Candace Talk right here on the Big Talker KQAM. Stay here. Welcome back into Candace Talk right here on the Big Talker, 1480 AM, 1025 FM, KQAM. Last segment, it goes by way too fast. Lots more to get to as we try to cram it in here to the last few minutes. Thanks again to Cindy Miles coming on the program. Good luck to her with the city council. If she does get on, we'll get her on the program as we do Brian Fry. So we'll probably get, actually, we need to get Brian Fry back on the program probably next week or the next two weeks because it's been a while since we've chatted with that guy. Uh, Real quickly, this kind of has to do with Candace a little bit, but... Let's get into some breaking news as some stuff's happening this morning. So just about 20 minutes ago, U.S. Senator Roger Marshall made a post on his social media. Democrats voted today to give COVID-19 checks to illegal immigrants and felons. That's encouraging. Not necessarily surprising out of Washington, D.C., but, you know, you're an illegal alien. You're not going to get deported. You're going to get a $2,000 check from the federal government. You're a felon. And you'll just, uh, why the heck not? Just get money in prison or something. So uh, I wanted to see the latest vote from the Senate and the latest out of the Wall Street Journal just about a few minutes ago or about an hour ago. Senate Democrats were poised to pass President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package Saturday by the slimmest of margins. Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat, brought the chamber to a standstill much for Friday when he balked at Democratic proposals to extend federal jobless benefits until October 4th. Uh, That's a little stupid and ridiculous, but okay. After hours of negotiations, Democrats struck a new deal to extend the current $300 weekly benefits through September 6th and make a portion of the 2020 benefits non-taxable for some households. 
wait a second, they're going to be taxing those. Yeah, and you can have your money back from the federal government. We're just going to tax you on it. <laughs> you know, well done, Democrats. You really care about the little people, don't you? You really care about those little folk down here. You know, we're going to give you some money to help, but we're just going to tax the hell out of it. But, oh, by the way, the ones that are on unemployment that maybe were on unemployment before the COVID pandemic, we're going to give you more money, and we're not going to tax you on that. Makes sense, right? Well, it makes makes a lot of sense. The final change of the Senate bill highlighted centrist Democrats' powerful influence in the evenly divided chamber. Where a single, I love the Wall Street Journal's um, flavor, the pizzazz they put into their writing, where a single Democratic defection would have derailed the bill. Senate Democrats lowered the weekly payments to $300 from their $400 level in the House bill, phased out these $1,400 direct payments more quickly for some households, and stripped out minimum wage increase that had passed in the House late last week. Uh, last weekend, after the relief package passed the Senate, it will head back to the House. Uh, so it sounds like, now here's what I'm trying to find, and uh, let me see if I can try and find another. Da, 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 da. So the bill's not finalized yet, and it doesn't sound, sound like it's going to go anywhere, because you got to remember, this COVID relief bill, as far as I'm aware, maybe it's different. It needs 60 votes because they still have the filibuster in there. If it's $2 trillion, you cannot have a non-filibuster economic bill go through the Senate. So you need Republicans to support this as well. So what I'm trying to find, here's the latest one from Fox News. What I'm trying to find is, did Republicans support this enough to where this would actually pass to go back to the House? Because remember, if you adjust a bill in one chamber, it needs to go back to the other chamber, even if the former chamber already passed it. The House already passed a bill. The Senate's now manipulated it and twisted it and fixed it ish quote-unquote fixed now it goes back to the house for them to approve it if they make any adjustments or changes it goes back to the senate again and it could bounce back and forth but it sounds like the house would just kind of ram it through with whatever the senate does but do they have to get the super majority with the 60 votes that's what i'm trying to figure out here and i'm not seeing anything even from the fox news story here, uh, President Joe Biden and Senate Democrats have agreed to tighten eligibility for the $1,400 payment, saying uh, with incomes between $75,000 and $100,000. But under the Senate bill, the phase-out stops at $80,000. So if you make $80,000, then sorry, you're not going to get a $1,400 stimulus bill I mean, or a stimulus check. You're just not going to get it. We just don't care about you. You're rich, evil people, and we don't want you to have any money. Most Americans still getting full amount either in either bill. The medium household income, $68,000 in 2018. $15 an hour minimum wage removed. Very interesting. Uh, oh, here we go. Senate parliamentarian rule that the minimum wage increase violated strict budget rules limited uh, limiting what could be included into a package that can be passed with a 51 vote rather than the 60 needed to overcome a filibuster. So because of the removal of the $15 an hour minimum wage, that's what we're going to get. A massive $2 trillion porculous bill that's going to give you very little money. It's going to spend on all these special projects. It's typical government wanting to bankrupt this nation. It's a terrible, ridiculous, stupid bill. They removed the $15 an hour minimum wage. They only need the simple majority now. It goes back to the House. They're going to pass it, signed by the president. It's a done deal. It's going to be done here in the next week. Very frustrating, very angering, but that's what we get when Democrats run and everything is ruining the country. Have a great weekend. Back at it next week. I'm Andy Hoosier on Kansas Talk. Let the madness begin. The madness is about to begin, and we want you to be part of the fun. Join the big talker, KQAM, for all the action with your very own tournament bracket. Test your bracket skills and get a chance to win great prizes. Just go to one of our participating sponsors and grab your bracket or fill out your bracket online at kqamradio.com. It's the madness you've been waiting for. And it's all right here on 1488. 
AM and 102.5 FM KQAM. It's a month of madness. And it's on the Big Talker, 1480 AM and 102.5 FM KQAM.